Hey everyone, back again. Today I'm going to start what will be a two-part episode or two-part series on Franz Fanon's Black Skin, White Masks. Now before jumping into it, if you want to follow me anywhere other than here, you can find me on Instagram at theory underscore and underscore philosophy or on Twitter at David Guigno. If you're new here, welcome. I'm David. I try to explain philosophical concepts and ideas in a way to make them accessible to you. So if you're new, like, share, subscribe, and you'll see videos I release every single week. Uh, tell your friends if you want to help me out. You can also help me out monetarily via Patreon or PayPal, but obviously no pressure. If you found this on YouTube, you're going to be able to find it in podcast form pretty much anywhere where you get podcasts. Or if you found this in podcast form, you're going to be able to find me on YouTube where I sometimes accompany videos with what I do, which um, I don't know, some people prefer. So anyways, without further ado, let's jump into Fanon's Black Skin, White Masks, written in 1952 or released in 1952. So as with most books, this starts with an introduction in which Fanon lays out that in the face of European colonialism and the racial prejudice found in it and motivated by it, Fanon contends that black people are not people. They are a kind of subhuman or assume a kind of subhuman place in the eyes of the dominant global social order at the time, at least in relationship to Europe, as Europe was uh, kind of exerting its control and power over North America, South America, Africa, uh, many parts of Asia, Europe had that kind of global stranglehold. And in that paradigm, black people were uh, illustrated as being kind of subhuman. Now, by losing the status of humanity or by not having the status of humanity conferred upon black people by the white European colonizers, what that meant was an alienation not only from the dominant institutions, be they political, economic, and so on, but also an alienation from oneself. And this is going to be a theme throughout the course of this book in how racism, as it was uh, realized in imperialism and after imperialism, uh, or colonialism, after colonialism, how these acts create a situation in which black people do not have the capacity to recognize themselves because the entire enterprise of recognition is monopolized by uh, white European settlers. Now, toward the end of the text is when he elaborates on this in, in more detail, but I want to put it out here to make it very clear. Fanon is trying to imagine crafting a space for possibility in the face of these efforts to monopolize recognition, to monopolize humanity. Fanon wants to oppose that, not by just uh, embracing it or being a, being a part of it. He wants to find a new way to realize this thing called humanity without necessarily looking back, but instead by engaging with the present and looking forward. Now, with the entire racist enterprise that motivated, largely motivated European colonialism, black people in this context are sealed in their skin. They are uh, sort of uh, trapped within their bodies because their skin is a marker of difference that is used perpetually, repeatedly used against them. So they assume a quality of objectification. They're repeatedly objectified, whereas whiteness is associated with humanity. It is associated with subjectivity. 
And in this dynamic, that is the objectification of black people and the subjectification of white people, what we see for Fanon is the black man wanting to be white and the white man slaves to reach a human level. And this describes or reveals the impetus behind the title of the book, Black Skin, White Masks, efforts put on or attempted by black people in order to gain recognition in the eyes of the hegemonic, violent, racist European machine that monopolizes recognition and monopolizes what humanity is and who can have it. So in order to engage this phenomenon, what Fanon does is he bridges social analyses that are going to consider social factors like colonialism, like economic factors, and other things, in conjunction with or in dialogue with discussions about those, the, those social effects upon black people's psyches and white people's psyches for that matter as well. So he's going to talk about the ways in which colonialism and racism affect black people psychologically and he uses psychoanalytic language psychoanalytic theory to engage with these effects these social effects now he is not satisfied with either one or the other he's not satisfied with either totally embracing a psychoanalytic diagnosis of the social factors nor is he intent only on remedying social factors he thinks that in order for racism to be combated it demands both an engagement with the social factors in order to change them, to create this possibility, this new future. At the same time, for him, it is important to undo the harms that have been inflicted. This is in a kind of psychoanalytic way, engaging with a therapist, engaging with uh, an anti-racist therapist, I should specify, in order to undo the uh, harms committed. Because if not... If the social factors are just changed without an engagement with the individuals on a psychological level, the same, um, the same issues are going to reemerge again and again, and the same problems are going to arise, or the same ailments are going to persist because the uh, psychological conditions haven't been corrected or remedied or dealt with. So in his words, colonialism opens up a psycho-existential complex, and he's going to describe this in different ways throughout the course of the book, uh, and it assumes many different forms, like an inferiority complex, or the development of neurosis, or a specific kind of neurosis that affects black people who've been uh, subject to colonialism. Now, to close up this his introduction, he wants to specify that he doesn't want to universalize the experience of colonialism. He wants to focus on the Antilles. He wants to focus on his Antillean context. And he'll talk a lot as well about Martinique. But in doing so, there's a point in the text when he says that, you know, we really can't ignore the fact that there is a common thread in uh, colonialism inflicted against black people that uh, emerged in, uh, that uh, originated in Africa and how these same tendencies are reflected in the uh, colonialism of like Martinique and, and uh, the Antilles in South America and the same up through Central America, of course, and similar conditions that affect uh, indigenous populations in, in North America as well and 
Many of the same threads can be seen here, and he'll even come to mutually affected people by European racism. Now that puts us here into the first chapter titled The Negro and Language. And I think it's important here to take a minute to reflect upon the language being used. Obviously, uh, many of these terms are going to be outdated. And it, this is something that I had to th really think about uh, because I'm, I'm a white dude. Uh, and there are certain words that are certainly uh, off limits to me, and I'm not um, ignorant of that. However, in some contexts, like in the one I just described, and this will come up throughout the course of the text, I have an issue with censoring uh, Fennel in order to make my, uh, in order to mitigate my white sensibilities, as though I should feel guilt uh, and try to um, alleviate that guilt by censoring the brilliance that is Fennel. Uh, and this is something that I would really enjoy someone, if someone was willing to put in the labor to uh, go into more detail about it. Uh, but obviously I recognize certain exceptions, including the N-word that I will never utter. But in this context, uh, it's something I've engaged with and I'd like to hear more if anyone had any more thoughts on it. Case here, going into the first chapter here. So Fanon's low, uh, focus, I should say, on language here is motivated by his recognition that language and culture are largely intertwined. They go hand in hand. Now, of course, different cultures speak the same language. American culture and British culture are incredibly different, yet they both speak English. And here we can add the caveat that, you know, dialect is also going to inform these differences as well. But what remains consistent is uh, the way that language is going to be embedded within culture, it's going to circulate within culture, and so on. So in this context between European settlers and, and people in the Antilles exist two different cultures. And in this particular case as well, two different languages. So the Antilles, les Antilles, were colonized by France. And so we have a split here between Creole being spoken in the Antilles versus French, the language of the colonizer. So Fanon says that to become more French, to adopt the language of the colonizer, became associated with becoming more white in the eyes of both fellow Antillians for uh, Fennel, and in the eyes of the colonizers. It was a sign of being more white. Now this is true of almost every colonial dynamic in which colonized people begin to lose their culture and their language and adopt the culture and language of the colonizer. And the old culture, or the culture that was there before colonization, becomes associated with a kind of subhumanness that we've already described. It becomes associated of a time-long past, almost like uh, an archaic element of the past. So anyone who still speaks the original language will be associated with a kind of primitiveness, primitiveness that is then used to further justify the imposition of the colonial language and culture onto those people. They might say, oh, they haven't fully adopted our standards yet. Let us elevate the amount of force we are going to impose through education, through politics, through economic factors, whatever, in order to encourage them to adopt our language through religion, uh, through any one of these means. And this appreciation of the colonial language might even be internalized by many colonized people, where they will see it 
as uh, a way by which they can enter into a better life. They may make a better life for themselves, and indeed that might be the case. But it is only so because these people have created the conditions for that to be the case. It isn't, there's nothing natural about, for example, the French language opening up more possibilities for colonized African people in the many different African nations or South American nations that France colonized, Central American nations. And this presents a kind of, or opens up a kind of panoptic situation where suddenly colonized people start to turn against each other, where you have people who adopt the colonial way of life or try to, who then turn against those who refuse it. And they are seen as the enemy to progress, seen as the enemy to, uh, in, in many cases, associating European civilization with uh, civilization itself. By people not adopting the oppressive language of the colonizer, they are seen as a hindrance to progress. And so what we see in a panoptic fashion is people surveying each other and surveying themselves. And Fanot describes how he has to maintain a certain dialect to speak with French people. He has to talk a certain way. He has to police his language in order to be accepted so that he's not shamed, he's not ridiculed, whatever. Or more specifically, he describes how French people will speak to him like, like they would speak to a child, as though he is incapable of understanding them with their so-called proper dialect. He has to be spoken down to, which is only part of their uh, belief that uh, Fanon and his other, his fellow Antillian people are somehow less uh, human than them, less developed. And this is all very ironic because we don't see the same dynamic unfold in the case of, let's say, a German person or a Russian person who might not be proficient in French speaking to a French person. And it might be because that the French person recognizes in the German person or the uh, Russian person a similar, uh, something they can relate to, notably, most likely their white skin at the time. So the idea of black people in the eyes or in the minds of the colonizers, be it France or Spain, Portugal, whatever, or England, each of these different ideas come to be replicated in pop culture. They will be replicated in film. They will be replicated in uh, comic books and novels and so on in order to generate uh, an image of what it means to be a black person in a specific context. And what happens is that that image is going to be reproduced to such an extent and consumed to such an extent within a certain space, within a certain geographical location, that the image will start to become true. And it will become synonymous with what it means to be a black person in any given context. So France, for example, of course, one good example from there would be the show Tintin, for anyone who's familiar with that, involves a young uh, man named Tintin, or Tintin for... English-speaking people who may have encountered that show, and he goes on all these adventures all around the world, and it is riddled with stereotypes about people all across the world that are meant not to demonstrate any kind of respect for people in their context, but to instill an idea about how these people exist and what that relationship means to Tang Tang, what that relationship means to a colonial power that has absolutely every right to just enter into a person's a country, into a, a, a community space, 
and just do whatever they want. Now with all of this, there's a trap being set up that Fennell recognizes. In the face of negative stereotypes, well, I guess all stereotypes are really are negative, in the face of these stereotypes, it might behoove black people to say, no, you know what? I can be like the European. I can act French. I can do all the French customs. I can participate in that. Let me do that. Now to this, Fanon says, isn't this interesting? It seems like our only two options are to capitulate to a negative stereotype, to a negative image of us, or to adopt the culture that oppresses us. In both cases, what we see is an affirmation of European culture at the expense of black culture, either in its being constructed negatively or its disappearance by having black people simply adopt French, in this case, French culture from uh, Les Antilles, from uh, the Antilles. In order to adopt that culture, we see the affirmation of French culture, European culture, at the expense of black culture. And that puts us here into chapter two, the woman of color and the white man. So for Fennel, in his words, the person he loves will strengthen him by endorsing his assumptions of his manhood. They are going to exist for him to affirm what he knows to be elements about his manhood, what confirm his manhood, which might be a maybe the not the best way to think about a romantic relationship or love, but who am I to say? Could be an issue of translation too. But this dynamic is lost between, uh, in the case that he is describing, between a black woman and a white man, where he says that authentic love will remain unattainable before one has purged oneself of that feeling of inferiority. Now, in this case, between a, a woman of color, between a black woman and a white man, Fanon contends that the black woman is always going to feel inferior to the white man on the basis of uh, her race. And because there is this imbalance, there is not going to be the possibility for real love to unfold. So to illustrate this, he draws upon the work of Lucette Serenu, uh, her book uh, called Je suis Martiniquaise, uh, Martiniquaise, I am a, I am a Martin Martinican woman, is the English translation, where she clearly demonstrates love for a white man in the, in the book um, on the basis of his desirable race, the, just the fact that he's white. Almost as though she want, almost as though she wanted to be like him, wanted to be him. Now, interestingly, interestingly, this doesn't just manifest itself in a desire for white men. It also comes out in a desire for lighter-skinned black men in this context. And he's referring here specifically to his experiences of Mar Martinique, Martinican women, who he he suggests had more of a desire for lighter-skinned black men, which is um, certainly a phenomenon we see all over the world where uh, in, in various places, lighter-skinned people are going to be seen associated with higher culture. They're going to live among the higher ranks of society and so on, whereas darker-skinned people in certain contexts are going to be um, discriminated on the basis of their skin color, which really opens up the complexities of the of discussions of race where if uh if we were like in this context to discuss the case of black people we have to acknowledge that there are going to be differences in how black people are going to exist in the world 
on the basis, almost on the degrees of their skin color that uh, Fanon describes here. Now, all of this relates to a broader fear of black skin, what he calls negrophobia. Uh, and this, you know, the more black somebody is in their skin color, that is, uh, if they don't have a lighter skin color, the more fear the world, in this case, the world as it is uh, kind of contained by Europe, the world will have of those people. Now, he uses this language of, of phobia, that is, a fear of something, because he's not, he's not describing racism in the case of, like, the United States, uh, you know, during slavery, after slavery, much to this day, where racism assumed a very active, violent form against black people in the case of, you know, violence against black people, very direct violence. Now, he's saying that exists, of course, but the phenomenon he's focusing on right here is a little less active. So describing it as a phobia implies that this fear is what is going to maintain oppression without it necessarily being conducted actively through violence. It's just going to be like an expectation that these people are going to become less black through their culture, through their language, going to adopt certain norms, or else they're just going to be feared, kind of kept out of certain social, institutional arenas, and so on. So to return again to the case of a black woman uh, being with a white man, as the chapter suggests, he describes the experience of inferiority or the feeling of inferiority embodied by these black women. He describes this as effective erethism, which is what he, what he defines as extreme embodied sensitivity. And this, this is something that can be treated via his um, therapeutic understanding or his approach to psychoanalysis. So to remedy, remedy this, as I said earlier, it would demand both a treatment of this psychological malaise at the same time as addressing these social factors that contributed to it, contribute to it. And he further connects this to psychoanalytic uh, approaches by associating effective erethism with neuroticism, where at times this manifests itself in a desire to escape from one oneself, uh, to shed oneself. And in the experiences of these black women wanting to become white, that amounts to a trying to get rid of one's skin in order to become something else, someone else. And this might be a good point for an ad. Okay, I hope that wasn't too jarring. I hope that there probably wasn't anything there. Probably just a long silence. You may have had a moment to think about what I've said so far. Uh, maybe why all the reasons you think I'm wrong. But in any case, there was that. So that puts us here into chapter three, the man of color and the white woman. So no longer the black woman and the white man. Now we have the man of color and the white woman. So through the white woman, the black man attains a symbolic entrance into civilization. At least this is how the narrative, so the narrative goes. So he thinks, he thinks this through the work of René Marin and one of his characters in one of his books, uh, Jean Venus, or Jean Venus, um, who is a black man living in France. So Fanon recounts a moment in the text in which somebody says to Venus, who is uh, in, the, in the text, Jean Venus is a student, a black man as a student living in France, um, where one person says to him that he doesn't see him as a black man because he's a student, almost as though because he has entered into French culture, 
he has effectively exited his skin color and become white, become French in this case. Now, despite this, the text repeatedly illustrates Jean as, as thriving to become less black and to become more white and to become more French, more European. And one way to do this would be to sleep with a white woman, to become, uh, to enter a relationship with a white woman. And Fanon also describes how for many, uh, many black men who would go to France from French colonies like Martinique, like Les Antilles, like many other countries, um, it was almost like a rite of passage for black men to sleep with white women. And he says that this is simply a desire to become white in an instance, to, to, be, to embrace white culture. And so Fanon diagnoses Jean Venuse, and he suggests, Fanon suggests that Venuse suffers from abandonment neuroticism of the negative aggressive type. That is, he feels a perpetual sense of lack. He always, he feels a sense of lack of his uh, not being white enough, not being European enough, and always trying to fill that lack, fill that void. And Fanon traces this essentially to uh, an early abandonment. He happened to be abandoned by his mother. Just because Fanon uh, locates this early abandonment in, in, the, in Jean's loss of his mother, his mom's abandoning him, Fanon is not satisfied with saying that, oh, all that needed to happen here was for uh, his mother to have stuck around because that won't actually get at the heart of the matter, which is that the way that this manifests itself is determined by social factors. So while there may have been this initial trauma for Jean, the, it, it, there was no clear way that it would have manifested itself. The fact that it manifests itself in such a way as his desiring to enter into a space that is paternalistic to him, uh, largely taking on a kind of parental figure that is European culture, the fact that he's always trying he's always trying to gain approval in the face of that culture speaks to various social factors. So if it weren't Europe, it could have been something else. And that is where the problem lies for Fanon. It is with that um, social dynamic that m encourages an otherwise um, neutral, I will say, trauma. The trauma itself is not neutral, but how it would have manifested itself could have been in any other way. The fact that it manifests itself in this particular way speaks to the social factors, is, is all I'm saying here. So in the face of this, Fanon then, acknowledging these social factors, advocates for a restructuring of the world rather than simply diagnosing or correcting Jean. And that puts us here into chapter four, the so-called dependency complex of colonized people. So here he's going to engage with Maud Menoni's uh, psychological evaluation of colonization uh, in her text is titled Prospero and Caliban, the psychology of colonization. And Prospero and, and Caliban are figures from Shakespeare's uh, Tempest. Now, Fanon is going to take aim at Maud here, Maud uh, Menoni, because she, she does many things wrong. However, she does some things right. And some of the things that she does right is acknowledge the mutuality or the way that both social factors and psychological factors contribute to certain psychological dispositions on the part of colonized people. But she doesn't do it properly. She, she misses the mark for Fanon, ultimately. 
So she, as I said, effectively bridges these two factors, bridges social and psychological factors. Now where Fanon disagrees is with Menoni's locating the inferiority complex of colonized people to before colonialism, to their childhood essentially. So Menoni says that there is a kind of initial loss or feeling of abandonment, inferiority on the part of all colonized people. And this was just produced by uh, the conditions of their lives before colonialism. So colonialism really played no part. It just happened to occur to a group of people who were suffering already. And then the way that this inferiority complex continues is then ignored by her. It is ignored by her as being embedded within the very fabric of European culture, European colonialism, that uh, benefits directly off of the feeling of inferiority that colonized people will, will feel in the face of colonialism that encourages these colonized people to adopt that culture, to enforce and affirm that culture. So for example, she writes about uh, South Africa as just, just one example, where she suggests that racism of laboring whites. So, um, and she, she describes here how uh, there are many poor white people in South Africa who are laborers, as though there's any similarity between them and uh, enslaved black people. But in any case, that's what she contends. So. She says that in this case where there are laboring white people who happen to be racist, she says that their racism in those instances can be directly attributable to the toil that they experience in their lives, their toil-filled lives, the fact that they are paid nothing, the fact that um, they have pretty not great lives, which of course isn't something to celebrate, but she says that their racism can essentially be chalked up to that. Now this completely ignores how South Africa at its core at the time, very much still to, 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 up to today, uh, is a racist country with various racist institutions that, that um, propel themselves both directly and, and tacitly. Now, another point that Menoni makes in her, in her texts, in, in this text, is that for some group, to feel inferior, they must make up the minority. She suggests that in a context in which the majority of people are part of a certain group, they will not feel an inferiority complex, which is patently absurd uh, for, for so many reasons. And this is, it's almost like not even worth uh, Fano to really poke holes in this argument. Uh, he had to, of course, because Menoni was a big figure, but in any case, this is a ridiculous argument. And the reason that it is ridiculous is because power is not necessarily determined by your numbers. Power might be determined by just status. So you can have a, a handful of white people go into, I don't know, what before it was even named India, go into uh, India and command thousands, tens of thousands, millions of people without uh, actually having the majority or belonging to the majority. So what that tells us is that the number of people as it manifests itself or will uh, form a, a majority or a minority will not actually determine the amount of power 
a group has and won't actually determine whether a group might or might not feel inferior or superior. So another part of this whole discussion of the inferiority complex that Menoni entertains and that Fanon obviously has no patience for, another part of this that's kind of troubling is that so many colonized people all across the world, when they first confronted or were confronted by imperial nations, largely from Europe, they treated these people with, with in a lot of cases, respect. Uh, many West African countries welcomed European travelers, colonizers, with gifts, with uh, happiness, and with uh, greetings. The same with indigenous communities in, in North America and in indigenous communities in Australia, and the, the list goes on. So the sense of there being a kind of innate feeling of inferiority on the part of these people totally negates that in these initial encounters, there seemed to be a kind of mutual uh, respect. Now, what I say mutual, I mean on the part of the colonized people welcoming these these travelers in their eyes, probably just travelers, with uh, with greetings, with uh, with open arms. But of course, the colonizers took wasted no time trying to spread their crappy religion and their uh, economic policies and ideas onto these people. So they didn't, colonized people are not innately inferior or feel a sense of inferiority. Instead, this is taught. And the reason that this is taught in the words of Fanon is that what it does is it keep, it, it, it represents a society that derives its stability from the perpetuation of this inferiority complex. That is, it's lucrative to have people want to be like you, to feel inferior to you, so that they consistently try to become you, to enforce and affirm, uh, repeat your values. And like other complexes that he describes, he thinks that it is important to both address them on the individual psychological will level, as well as addressing the social factors that contribute to them. Now, in, for Minoni in her, in her work, her text, that is uh, Prospero and um, the, for the characters from The Tempest, these figures for her are important. And she proposes that the way that the story unfolds in, in The Tempest kind of be emulated in the treatment of colonized people. So in the text, Prospero assumes a kind of patriarchal figure in the Tempest to, um, or toward Caliban, who repeatedly tries to um, sleep with Miranda, who is Prospero's daughter. So Prospero takes it upon himself to command to tame Caliban, who is threatening to uh, take Miranda. And so... Minoni sees this as being a way to understand the colonial uh, colonized dynamic, colonizer-colonized dynamic, where colonizers have to take it upon themselves to be these kind of patriarchal figures taming the wilderness of uh, colonized lands and people, which is obviously extremely problematic and messed up. And that's, I'll close this episode off there. Next time we're going to take up from chapter five about midway through the text, with the chap is titled The Fact of Blackness. So if you listen this far, uh, great. Uh, if there's anything that I did wrong, I'd love to hear about it. Anything I missed, I'd love to hear about it. Um, I always like reading comments. I don't always have the time to respond to all of them because there are too many. 
Uh, but I, I do my best to read all of them. If you've listened to this and you liked it, leave five stars. If you listen to this in podcast form, that is, and you can leave five stars or like it on YouTube if you've listened to it there. And yeah, on that note, catch you next time. Take care.